Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. Welcome back, Warrior Next Door listeners. Last week's episode, the second installment of a three-part series featuring General William Matz, focused primarily on his uh, experiences during Vietnam and watching that war wind down. In this third and final installment, you're going to hear General Matz, or ultimately become General Matz, talk about what it was like uh, serving on four different presidential administrations in very high ranking capacities and also doing it with distinction while trying to retrain a war-weary military from the malaise of vietnam into a new fighting force that quite frankly we know today is probably the best in the world i won't say probably it is the best fighting force in the world and general Matz was on the front lines of that as well as a whole bunch of other things that you're not going to miss. So so sit back and enjoy this third and final installment of a very storied individual's life, and quite frankly, a patriot in, uh, in the United States military. You, you would end up, according to my research, being the executive secretary. That's a pretty high-level position for Casper Weinberger and uh, Frank Colucci under the Reagan administration, the highly popular uh, Reagan administration. He's still looked upon as one of our greatest presidents. Could you take Could you take us through how you went from a soldier and mud in your boots to doing this sort of thing? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that that was a very. Uh, I, I was very honored to get that position. Uh, I was assigned to the Army Staff, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, eighty six eighty seven. And uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense has what they call an executive secretariat. It's headed by a full colonel or a Navy captain, an 06. It's a highly sought after position, Tony, by all the services. And uh, in fact, Colin Powell had that position at one time. <laughs> okay. So, so uh, I was there when the... Uh, the position was turning over, so they go out to all the services and they say, hey, nominate one colonel for this. Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps nominated somebody. I was the Army's nominee. It's incredible. Uh, I remember General Brown brought me up and said, Bill, we want to we nominate you to be Casper uh, uh, Weinberger's executive secretary. It's a prestigious position. All services wanted it because it gave – it gave that service an officer who was sitting right there, you know, in this office of the secretary and you could get the info. You could you could, you know, find out what's going on and help your own service. So they he called me up. He said, he said, you're going to go down for an interview tomorrow with Cap Weinberger. Put your uniform on. Make sure it looks good. Wear all your medals and all that stuff and do a good job. Damn it. We want the job. <laughs> so I would. I went down, had a wonderful interview with Cap Weinberger. But you know what, Tony? I loved the man. because He was an infantryman. 
Did oh, you know I, that? I did not know Cap that. Cap Weinberger was an infantryman in New Guinea in World War II. I didn't know he, that. He even, he even uh, left Harvard to join the Army before we entered, uh, before Pearl Harbor started. So here I was talking to a fellow infantryman. He liked me right away. He said, you know what? And he'd been through my records and the guys that had interviewed me earlier told him about me. You know, he, he was pretty well set up. He knew about me. But it was a wonderful interview. And I, he said, he said I, how do you feel about coming up here to be executive secretary? And I said, well, sir, I want to get back with troops. That's what I want. And he said, well, he said, okay, I understand that. But right now I need you up here. He said, that time will come. I put all this in my book. I remember his exact words. <laughs> yeah, so I got the job. He selected me over the other service nominees who are all very good people, I'm sure. Yeah. And I had that job for uh, a little over a year. Cap Weinberger then left in November of six, of 87, Tony. Mm -hmm. And Frank Carlucci, who was the head of the National Security Council, Reagan sent him over to replace Cap. And then Colin Powell took over as the head of the National Security Council. So it was quite a team we had up there. And uh, of course, I loved Ronald Reagan. He was just my kind of person. He was a conservative. He had the values of America, you know, uh, a city on a shining hill. But he, his administration had a hell of a job rebuilding the services coming out of Vietnam. And remember, he took over after Carter. Yeah. yeah. Carter gave away the country, gave away the Panama Canal, decimated the military. One of the weakest men I've ever known. Maybe a good Christian, weak as hell, no leadership. Put the country in a hell of a bind. And the Reagan administration had to come in and rebuild the country and the military. Cap Weinberger was his defense secretary responsible for that rebuild of the services. So I was up there at a time, time when we went through that. So what was your role in this position? As executive secretary, uh, it's a, it's a secretariat office. that sits right outside the secretary's office and you are responsible for all of his correspondence, hmm. you know, going in and out, uh, responsible for the weekly, uh, assessment, and the weekly report the, sec uh, the defense secretary would send to the president. Uh, I, had, uh, I had an office of about 12 people, and these were, these were officers, uh, majors, and lieutenant colonels or commanders from the other services, uh, all very good writers, all top-notch officers that the, the other services would send. So, as I say, as the executive secretary, I was responsible for all correspondence that left or came in. We wrote his letters. We wrote, uh, we drafted briefings for him. Uh, I was also uh, the senior liaison to the White House for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So I worked with the people that were over there in the White House. It was quite a job. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I hated the Pentagon, but I enjoyed that because 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 I enjoyed Cap Weinberger. Awesome. I I just I just enjoyed the man. I loved the man. He he did such a good job. And Frank Carlucci, yeah. who ended up promoting me to Brigadier General uh, in his office there in the Pentagon. 
so it was really it was really a good year there, um, even though the entire time I just couldn't wait to get back to troops. And I knew that day would come. Well, it's did the was a promotion part of that? I mean, as a brigadier general, that's what division level. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was selected for uh, promotion to brigadier general to general officer while I was there as a full colonel in the office of secretary of defense. And so my promotion ceremony was held in July of 19, uh, what was it, 88? Trying to get my dates here, right? Yeah. Yeah, 1988, Tony. And uh, Frank Carlucci hosted a beautiful ceremony for me there in the, uh, in the ceremonial rooms of the Pentagon in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I had my family there and, and some men who were with me in Vietnam. It, it was just a, it was a lovely ceremony, very lovely ceremony. And then, uh, and then they arranged a, uh, a courtesy call, farewell courtesy call with President Reagan uh, two days later. So Linda and I went over to the White House and, and had a very nice courtesy call with the president. And we walked into the Oval Office and he said, hey, I'm mad at you. He said, you know, it sort of startled me. I said, oh, my God, sir. He said, yeah. He said, you're beating me to California. <laughs> See, he was in his last few months, Tony, of his eight-year presidency. Yeah. And, of course, he couldn't wait to get back to his ranch in California. Yeah. And here I was leaving, and my assignment was Fort Ord, California, with the 7th Infantry Division. So what was, what was President Reagan like? Did, was that the first time you had a chance to meet him? No, 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 no. I had met him. I had met him once before when he came over to the, the to uh, Weinberger's office, and I was a backbencher there, you know. But oh my God, he was the kind of guy, Tony, that you you didn't feel. I mean, you just felt comfortable walking in and shaking his hand or saying hello to him. I mean, this is how I felt. You know what I mean? I wasn't at all intimidated or worried about that. Uh, I think Linda was a little bit. She was a little bit nervous and so forth. And uh, uh, but no, he was just full of warmth. And uh, you know, we were in his in his Oval Office for actually for for quite a while for, uh, there on our courtesy call, talking about a number of things. He was just very down to earth. That's that, and, and, he, and he and he everything that came from him. He loved the military too. He, he brought that out. And of course, as you know, he served. He yeah. served in the army during the war. Yeah, I. So you got this. You got this star on your lapel now. You're a brigadier general, and now you're ho heading out to California. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what was that like? Well, t share with us some of the experience. Well, I couldn't wait to get there. Yeah, I was assigned to one of the army's new light infantry divisions. Uh, I had been in the 82nd, uh, and I had been in the uh, 101st before that, and of course the 9th Infantry Division. Uh, in Vietnam and then in Korea, I was with the 2nd Infantry and 1st Cavalry Division. So here I'm going out to a light infantry division now, uh, a light fighter, and I just couldn't wait to get there. It was on the Monterey Peninsula, a beautiful place. Fort Ord was a great post. And, uh, yeah, so I spent uh, a little over a year with the 7th Infantry Division, but the biggest thing that happened there Again, like the events that hit me when I was with the 82nd, we had Operation Just Cause. Do you remember that? I, I we do. We went down and got Noriega, the dictator. I, I, I do, but not 
I was not a general. I was a kid in, in high school. Could you share with us what that experience was like? What you Yeah, had that to was do? quite an experience, uh, Tony. I'll tell you, that was December that was December 20th, 1989. We got the call from the JCS uh, saying, saddle up. Uh, we're, we're, we're sending the, the 7th Infantry Division down to Panama to eliminate the PDF. The PDF is the Panama Defense Force. Noriega was a dictator. Frankly, the last, uh, the few months prior to that, he had really turned an enemy against the United States. Uh, and I think he had his Congress uh, uh, actually declare war on us. Uh, there were all kinds of terrible incidents that led up to it. And the senior Bush was president then. And he said, God damn it, we're gone. Yep. So the 82nd had a brigade that jumped in. The Rangers went in. Special operating forces were there. The SEALs were there. The SEALs had a, a very tough battle where they lost four, four uh, troops on the first, first couple hours of their operation. So anyway, yeah, we got the call to go. And 24 hours, wheels up. And we uh, deployed out of uh, Travis Air Force Base, which was 156 miles north of Fort Ord. So we had to convoy up through the roads to get out. And then we also used shut down Monterey, Monterey uh, Civilian uh, Airport. The military took that over and we sent troops out of there. So it was quite a deployment, uh, quite an operation uh, going down there and getting Noriega. Uh, it was one of the, uh, if you go back and read your history books, it was one of the, uh, the, the best planned and best executed joint operation America has ever done. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because we, I believe at that time, still had a bit of a hangover from Vietnam. And yes. was, was this the first, like, were our military engaged um, uh, another nation state in, in a way that we hadn't done since really Vietnam? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly correct. Now, right before that, Let's see. I think it was, I think it was 1984, 83 or 84, Tony. Do you remember Granada? I do. We went down to Granada, which really was not much of a, a major operation or anything, but uh, the 82nd deployed to Granada along with some other forces. And uh, it was not a well-executed uh, joint operation. There were issues with the Navy, the Army, Marine Corps. I was not on that. I just missed it, uh, and that I had gone back to Korea. But uh, we didn't execute very well there. So this was, yes, this was the first, I believe, this was the first major, yeah, this was an invasion of Panama. Yeah. This was the first major operation we really had after we came out of Vietnam and after Granada. And so this was so well executed. Uh, we learned, learned lessons on the Granada operation and patched them up. And this was a very, very well executed operation in Panama. Uh, we lost 23 men, 23 soldiers down there altogether. Well, soldiers in Navy, the entire U.S. Uh, force that went there had 23 killed. And, of course, a number wounded. But we eliminated the Panama Defense Force almost in the first few hours. 
And then it took about 10 days to capture Noriega. If you'll remember, he ran into the papal nuncio there and had the priest uh, uh, protect him there for a while until we could talk him out of there. Is it fair to say that um, the invasion of Panama was a culmination of all of the new training, the money, the investment that the Reagan administration made in the military that kind of came to fruition at that point? I think that's a fair comment. Absolutely. In fact, uh, as I say, I was in one of the Army's new light infantry divisions. They call them LIDs, 10,500. We were not heavied up so we could deploy quickly, you know. We were not encumbered with a lot of heavy uh, vehicles and so forth. And we, we could deploy in a lot fewer aircraft than a heavier conventional division. So this was a, this was a major test of the validity and the value of the light infantry division. We got out of there quickly, got on the ground, and got out into the mission area. Yeah, yes, this, uh, this validated, this validated a lot of what we had done during the Reagan years in organizing and planning for future military operations. Because as, from as far as I can tell, and you're the general, I'm the guy reading the newspapers and, and you know reading the history books and stuff, but you were there, it just felt like from that point on, our military became the dominant force it used to be and still is right now. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. You're right. Just cause, yeah. And I'll tell you, we were very, very careful. There, there were no uh, civilian casualties. I mean, there may have been a few, but, you know, we were very careful of that. The rules of engagement were the, were, were the, the right kinds of rules of engagement. We took the, the PDF out quickly. We had the targets, uh, had the right equipment, right people, right commanders uh, to do the job. And uh, yeah, from that point on, so let's see, that was, what are we talking about, 88, 89. Uh, yeah, we came out of there then in 89. Uh, we had the Gulf War and uh, performed very well there. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it did. Yeah, and from that point on, we were, we were, uh, yeah, good. We had, we had rebuilt our military after the Vietnam War. That's that's kind of what it felt like. And so this you would retire in 95, but after Just Cause, um, there was Desert Freedom. Um, that you know, the first Gulf War. Yeah. We, we're, what t- tell take us through your what your trajectory of your career was like as a brigadier general who would become a major general and still had these conflicts that we had to deal with. Yeah, so my first, as I say, Carlucci promoted me to Brigadier General, and my first assignment as a Brigadier General was uh, there with the 7th Infantry Division. So I left the division then and was assigned to be the Deputy Commanding General of U.S. Army Pacific. So uh, that's the uh, Army component commander to to the uh, theater commander in the Pacific. I was assigned that that's uh, at Fort Shafter, Hawaii, on the island of Oahu. Of course, my wife loved that assignment. <laughs> I was not real happy because I'd be leaving troops and then, you know, going to a high level staff, Tony. Yeah. yeah. But I but I went there and uh, and stayed there for, I guess, a little more than a year. And then they moved me to be the deputy commanding general of First Corps and Fort Lewis and First Corps. 
uh, is the core is the Army's core for the Pacific. So if anything blows up in the Pacific, uh, the first core, U.S. Army first core out of Fort Lewis, would be the core that would uh, oversee the operational command and you know control the units, the fight in the Pacific. So I was glad to get that job and uh, stayed there at Fort Lewis for uh, almost four years before we retired. Uh, thought it was time to retire, get out, and my leg was... Uh, uh, you know, I was feeling a pain in my leg, and I just couldn't. Uh, I just couldn't do the sustained long runs and the PT that is required of infantrymen. I had worn my leg out, worn it down through all the parachute jumping, through all the physical training, the runs and things like that. So, so that had a little impact on my deciding to get out too. But you know, you have to know when it's time to leave. And, and you like to leave on your own terms. So we retired in 95. Yes. What's, you know, most people will never know what it's like to have that star on your lapel. As a major general or a brigadier general, what are you responsible for? What, what does a day at the office look like for a general? Yeah, well, as a brigadier general, I was an assistant division commander in the 7th Infantry Division. And my responsibility there, I was the assistant division commander for support. There's also another brigadier general that is assistant division commander for operations. I was the support guy. So I had under me, I had all of the support, combat support, combat service support units, like the transportation, uh, the engineers, uh, the quartermaster, uh, the MPs, uh, the air defense artillery. Uh, those commanders worked for me. I was responsible for the training of those units, the operational capabilities, et cetera. And then when I became a two-star general, why I, I was the deputy corps commander, the corps commander being a three-star. So I was his deputy and obviously the guy that would fall in if anything happened to him. But in that capacity, I had a, a large number of, uh, of units uh, that reported to me directly there at Fort Lewis and elsewhere. That's it. All right, we're live again. So could you take us through some of the things that you did after you retired in 1995? Yeah, so I retired uh, in uh, 1995, and I took a job with the Raytheon Company. They're a large defense contractor out of New England, and they had just won the largest contract in the history of Raytheon. It was a $1.3 billion contract to put a surveillance system over the Amazon in Brazil. Huge undertaking. And so they hired me as their logistics director and manager for this program. It sounded very exciting. And I think you know me by now in my life, I look for challenges, you know? Yep. And uh, it was time to leave the Army. It was a very, very tough decision to leave after... 33 great years. I could have stayed another three years, uh, but, you know, we decided to get out. So I took the job with Raytheon, and uh, uh, a good bit of that was down in Brazil. So I spent a lot of time in Brazil. It was a very interesting uh, contract. And in fact, remnants of it are still ongoing. We put a surveillance system uh, up over the, uh, over the uh, Amazon because the Brazilian government was losing. Uh, a lot of lumber and logs due to uh, uh, illegal uh, 
uh, stealing, you know, of the logs of the, the tumor. There was a, uh, there were issues with the wildlife down there, uh, people hunting, uh, uh, issues of the Amazon, I don't know whether you know it or not, but it's also filled with a lot of great minerals. So there were all kinds of folks coming in, taking, stealing these things, and Brazil just had to get a better handle on preserving that great uh, Amazon River and its basin. So that's what we did. Well, without and- <clears throat> without giving away any state secrets, I mean, what kind of things did you guys do? I mean, the Amazon rainforest is huge. What do you guys yeah. use? Satellites? No, 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 it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. Uh, what we did is uh, we put up a uh, surveillance system, which consisted of aircraft uh, flying, obviously, above the Amazon on certain patterns. We put towers up throughout the Amazon, concrete towers down into the water, concrete bases, and then built the towers up, uh, you know, that would pick up signals and things like that. Uh, and all kind of other uh, echo-type systems, uh, radar systems, which is what Raytheon's known for, its radar and its missiles, radar systems and things like that throughout the Amazon. The executive agent for the contract for the country of Brazil was their Air Force, which made sense. So that's who we really contracted with, and, and that's what we did. I was the logistics guy responsible for making sure all of the hardware, the equipment, uh, uh, the materials they needed to build these things got into the country on time, got out to the Amazon. No small task, believe me. I mean, was it pretty cool being able to take uh, some of these skills that you learned during your career in the military and apply it in this way? Yeah, and, and that's exactly why they hired me, really. Uh, uh, they uh, they were looking for a, a good logistics manager, somebody who 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 knew uh, could operate in a in a dense area like that, and who had major uh, you know experience with uh, large scale logistics operations, and so they pulled out an infantry general like me. You know, <laughs> I took the job and stayed with Raytheon for just over five years, long enough to get uh, uh, vested, and then uh, I got an offer to go to Saudi Arabia and to be program general manager for all the uh, Vanel Arabia and Northrop Grumman programs there. And the reason I got that job, I go back to Frank Carlucci, who, as we talked about earlier, was secretary of defense. I worked for him. Well, he, of course, was out uh, out of the federal government, and he was with the Carlisle Group. I'm sure you've heard them. Yep a huge national uh, investor. He was uh, running the Carlisle Group in D.C. and asked me to have lunch one day, and and they had just bought the Vanilla Arabia contract with the Saudis and asked me if I would uh, like to go over to Saudi Arabia and be his general manager. So I took that job. And what did that entail? I mean, did you did you live over there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it included my wife. She could go with me. So we lived in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you've ever been over there, Tony. No, I haven't. I, I had never been. I had never been to Saudi Arabia before. And so that was an experience in itself. And if you'll recall now, we had just we had just uh, this was just months after uh, 9-11 bombing here mm-hmm. when the Saudis had uh, uh the majority of the bombers, 15 of the 19 that blew us up in New York that day, 
in Pennsylvania were Saudis, but that didn't deter me. Uh, so uh, I went over and took the job. We lived in uh, Saudi Arabia. We had our own compound, the vanilla. It was called the Vanilla Arabia uh, compound. And uh, Linda went with me. It was quite an experience for a woman living in Saudi Arabia, as you can imagine. And quite an experience for me. I had about 1,450 men on the contract. Uh, most of them were retired uh, Army uh, and Marine, non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers. Hmm. You know, they had served in the service. So uh, uh, we hired them because of their expertise and, of course, their, uh, their skills, uh, you know, their discipline, loyalties, and so forth. The contract was with the Saudi Arabian National Guard, and uh, it it's an ongoing contract. It's still going on today, and uh, this is a contract where we uh, continue to upgrade and modernize the Saudi National Guard in terms of weapons, systems, uh, the latest way to, uh, to fight maneuver, operations, intelligence, et cetera. Very, very interesting ongoing contract. And the uh, program general manager was usually always a retired Army general. Why do you think that was? Was it, again, because of the skill set that you bring with with organizational and in logistics and all that? Yeah, that was a big part of it. But but the major thing is it was with all the equipments that we were bringing in. It was all ground equipment, you know. Uh, a, a modern equipment, the same type vehicles that we were modernizing our own army with, why we would do this for the Saudis. It feels like after the, uh, boy, Operation Desert, I get Desert Storm and Desert Freedom mixed up, but there was well, one. There's Desert Storm and Desert Shield. That's it. So in Desert Shield, um, when that kicked off, it was kind of around this time, was it not? Yeah, that kicked off in, uh, what was it, the early 1990s. Yep. I was still on active duty, and at the time I was in the Pacific. We, we talked about it earlier, my assignment in Hawaii. And believe me, Tony, I was very, very upset that I was I did not get involved in that Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Only because I was in the Pacific. I tried to get released to go over and, and join one of the divisions that was going over, but my boss in the Pacific would not release me and rightfully so, you know, yeah. he said, Bill, your job is here now. We need you here. You know, there's enough war fighters going over, but, uh, that, that was probably, I think I say in my book, that was probably the biggest disappointment I had, uh, 33 years in the army that I missed desert shield, desert storm, even though it wasn't a long fight. It was a, it was a fight and war and, you know, you want to go to the beat of the drums, and I missed it. Yeah, I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys hone your skills and your abilities your entire life uh, to be a warfighter. So yes. it, I, I imagine it would be hard, and I hear that from most of the vets we interview, is, um, you know, once they know that there's a reason for them to apply these things that they learned as a warfighter, if there's something going on, they want to be a part of it. You you're, know? you're exactly right. Yeah. You're you're exactly right. Uh uh, you know, especially a combat arms officer like myself, an infantryman, uh, you, you want to go to the sound, the beat of the drum. That's your profession, and that's where you are. Yeah, totally. But anyway, anyway, I missed that one and uh, certainly tried to go, but the Army said no. <laughs> so 
So I'm glad we caught on that because that was that was one of the follow-up questions I was going to have. We didn't have a chance to talk about that period of history because you were still in the Army then. But it 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 wasn't long. So in 2004, I think, is when you were working for Northrop Grumman in Saudi Arabia. Uh, just a few years later, wouldn't I, I think you were tasked by President George W. Bush to do some work with the Benefits Commission. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. But let me just go back one step. While I was in Saudi Arabia, yep. uh, Tony, I don't know if you remember the uh, Al-Qaeda bombings in Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia in 2003. Do you remember that, reading about that? Uh, vaguely. Please remind me. Yeah. They they called it Saudi Arabia's 9-11 on May 12th. Uh, May 12th, uh, 2003, the Al-Qaeda terrorist hit my compound at 1130 at night. Oh. Killed 10 of my men in their sleep. And uh, we had, no, of course, no weapons. I had no way to defend myself. Nobody's allowed to carry a weapon in Saudi Arabia unless you're a Saudi. So we had no weapons. Uh, we had a security force, but they had no weapons, no arms. And uh, the Saudi, the Saudi uh, military provided actual outside the uh, compound security force. Uh, they got hit and overrun. They were killed. The Al-Qaeda uh, terrorists got in the front gate, blew the gate down, and ran a truck bomb right into my uh, high-rise where all my men were sleeping. Killed 10, wounded 90, 90 to 95, badly wounded. I lost uh, eyesight, lost limbs. They were in the hospitals for weeks and months and, of course, were evacuated back home. Very, very tough day, but uh, it was all over the, the news. Uh, sec I mean, I uh, Secretary of State was uh, Colin Powell at the time, and he just happened to be coming over the day before, uh, making his rounds uh, with the Mideastern countries, and we got hit. He was out to see me the next day, you know, and threw his arms around me, et cetera. Very, very tough time. Here I was in a battle where I could not fight back. I had no weapons. Isn't that something? And that was the part. For so, so first off, there was there's so many of these terrorist attacks that were occurring between 2000 and 2013 or 14. You know, yeah, you yeah, you're exactly that, right. You, know, you had the yeah. French, the French subway attacks and all that. But that's the first thing that came to my mind when you said that the attack was on your compound. Here you are retired, working yeah. with the Saudis to help allow their defense capabilities to stand on their right. own, and you guys get hit. Exactly. We're over there at the invitation of the Saudi government, working a Saudi contract to help them, and the al-Qaeda attacks our compound, I blew, the, blew it to, to bits. We had to uh, it actually just demolish the entire compound. So the rest of my tour over there for the next year and a half uh, was spent uh, redoing and refining, refitting, uh, another compound, so we could continue with the contract. And where where were you when this uh, when this explosion occurred? How close well, were you? Well, I'll tell you. It? When the actual explosion happened, eleven thirty that night, I was actually out in the field about seventy five clicks uh, west of the uh, the compound, out in the desert, exercising one of the uh, Sang brigades, infantry brigades. You know, we was on a pre planned training operation when they hit. 
So my wife was back on the compound along with uh, the wives of a lot of the men. And uh, uh, I guess the fortuitous thing is I was out there with a whole bunch of my men had had we been back there, there may have been more casualties. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I got back within a few hours when I got a call, got word what was going on. We raced across the desert to come back. And I got in there about uh, 5.30, 6 o'clock that morning when they were just removing the, the last bodies and uh, still taking people over to the hospital. A, a terrible, tragic day. I never felt so hopeless in my life, helpless in my life. Well, maybe both. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I well, yeah. Thank you for taking us back to talk about that. So at that point, did you, you and your wife have a discussion about how safe it was to stay over there? Oh yeah. Well, uh, immediately we sent all the, uh, the family members home. Yeah. Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, it was not a safe place for Westerners. So we had to send them home immediately. Linda was the last one to leave of the wives. And she came home and I stayed over there and uh, finished my tour out, uh, uh, you know, without her. Unbelievable. How were the local Saudis and the people that you met in, the, you know, outside of the terrorists that came in and, and hit your compound? How did they respond to the American presence? Did you feel like you guys were welcome there? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we did. And on my contract, I think I told you I had, what, about 1,400 men. Yep. Uh, the contract uh, was written in such a way that I would have to employ, uh, I think it was 400 or 450 Saudi nationals. <clears throat> so they were on my contract. Uh, and, of course, they were all very, 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 very upset about it, you know. Uh, but to this day, I'm not sure there wasn't some kind of an insider job either, if you know what I mean. I do. And Colin Powell thought that to his death, that there was an inside job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just interviewed uh, last week an Iraqi citizen who was an interpreter for the United States military right. during during the Gulf War, uh, during the surge in 2006. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he told me that when they would do the proper thing and alert the Iraqi authorities <clears throat> that they were going to move down a certain route to get resupplied. Right. He said they would get attacked every time. He said they stopped doing it and went to random routes and they stopped getting attacked every time. Yep, exactly, Tony. That's exactly what happens. You cannot trust these people. Let yep. me tell you. Yep. So you it's, cannot trust them. And that's where that brotherhood comes in, right? You got your yep. men around you that you've trained with. I yep. asked you how you felt about the soldiers you fought with in Vietnam. And those are the people you trust, it sounds like. Absolutely. Trusted every one of them. They were an American. They were Americans. Yeah. So um, did anything else happen between that and when you were uh, appointed for the Disabilities Benefits Commissioner? No, no, really nothing else happened. I finished my tour over there. And uh, uh, well, I did have another one of my employees uh, was shot and killed by a terrorist down uh, in the streets of Riyadh one day. I had to cope with that. Uh, but we, uh, we found the space and we rebuilt another compound. Uh, and, uh, we insisted that we be allowed to have our own weapons and carry our own weapons that had to go. That was a decision that had to go all the way to the King. Yeah. But, uh, my American boss said, no way are we going to continue this unless you can have Bill Matson and his men armed this time. 
So uh, we worked through that, and the Saudis finally gave in, and uh, we had a new compound still do over there, and we have our own arms inside that compound, so we can at least defend ourselves, if you know what I mean, if you're ever attacked again. Yeah, I, I agree. And then I left there. I left the... I left that uh, contract in what was it June of uh, June of 2004 and came home and uh, yeah took the job with the National Association for Uniform Services, which was a major national veterans organization, Tony, that advocates for veterans uh, uh, and their dependents. Great organization here, and uh, yeah, so it was during that time. The same time I took over, why I was asked by a uh, uh, by uh, a representative from President Bush's office if I would sit on this new commission to look at the uh, veterans, uh, the disability benefits for veterans, and I was really a perfect guy to do it. So I joined thirteen other veterans, and for what two and a half years we sat on that commission. What did you guys end up doing? What do you, during this time, helping to lead this effort, what do you feel, what do you feel really proud of? Well, I, I feel very proud of what we did on that. That was the first time that the United States government had done a full study on veterans and veterans benefits since the Omar Bradley uh, similar type commission back in 1957 that Eisenhower commissioned. Oh, so, so we went all the way from 57 until, uh, what did I say this was? This was 2005. Yeah. And we met, uh, we met every month for those two and a half years uh, in open meetings. We interviewed veterans. We went to VA hospitals. Uh, uh, we, we did all kinds of things that we came up with a rendered our report to the Congress and to the president in 2007. In it, we had a number of recommendations, most of which uh, have been uh, implemented by now. These were these were uh, recommendations for veterans' benefits, uh, better care in the hospitals, uh, things like that. It was really a very very worthwhile uh, commission, and uh, the commission report is about three or four inches uh, thick. You can pull it off probably on Google or something and look at the recommendations that were made. Very helpful to the veteran community, uh, and in particular, uh, the Vietnam veterans, you know, who were really the prime veterans at the time. The thing that I thought I read, excuse me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the work that you guys did actually led to a new GI Bill in 2010. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, that's. I mean, how? Yeah, that how was uh, that, that was uh, Senator Webb, the Virginia senator at the time. He pushed was a big proponent for that bill, and John McCain also was too. Of course, these are two veterans, mm-hmm. and as president of of the National Association of Uniform Services, we we grabbed right on it and worked with their staffs in in writing the uh, the language for the bill and getting it passed. Yeah. Well. And so that was a, uh, that's really something, uh, Tony, I'm very proud of that, you know, I was out of uniform, but I was still able to help in some way, uh, get, get, uh, this benefit for our Iraqi and Afghan veterans, similar to the GI bill for the world war II benefits, uh, uh, veterans. 
Yeah, it's 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 literally called the New GI Bill 2010. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what it was called. And they yeah. said it came from the National Association for Uniform Services recommendation. Yeah, well, yeah. well, we were one of the organizations. I, I can't take full credit, but like the Purple Hearts Association and the uh, uh, Military Order of uh, uh, Officers, the VFW, a lot of them pushed for it, but but we were a major proponent for it and really worked closely with Webb's office. So it must have been pretty cool also. I mean, you, you came out of the military. Well, you're still in the military. You were working for Ronald Reagan and his administration. And now you get a chance during retirement, if you can call it that, to work with George W. Bush on this important yep. project. Um, what sort of things were you doing after that? I know that you also had some work with the Trump administration as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So I stayed with the National Association for Uniform Services and uh I stayed with them six and a half years. And, you know, I thought it was time to leave. Their board wanted me to stay another two years. And I thought, no, 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 it's time to go. So I left that association. Hopefully I was uh, going to go into retirement, you know, <laughs> and, and enjoy life. But uh, that didn't last uh, very long. And then uh, one morning it in November, go back now, Tony, November of 2016, Trump had just won the election. Remember? Yes. Yeah. I think it was, what was election day? Was November 7th or 8th? Yeah, it so was a, a member, huge upset. A, a member of, of his transition team gave me a call. I was sitting home here in this very office where I'm sitting now, reading the newspaper one morning. I get a call from a very good friend of mine who's on the Trump transition team. And he said, Bill, this is so-and-so. Would you be interested in serving in the Trump administration? <laughs> and, you know, Tony, I'd been out a while, and I sort of missed the fray of combat. I missed the <laughs> fray of working, you know? Yeah. And I said, I didn't know Trump from Adam. And, of course, he didn't know me. Right. Uh, so uh, they were looking for senior military officers to take some of these key jobs in the administration. And I got a call from a friend of mine who knew me, knew my abilities, knew what I had done in the service. And I said, yeah, you know, I would. I would be very interested. It depends on the job and where it would be. So they went back and forth, and we finally settled on Secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission, which is uh, America's uh, prestigious uh, commemorative organization. Not a lot of people uh, heard about it. It's a very small agency in the federal government, about 460 uh, total employees. And what we do is oversee and manage the American overseas cemeteries and battle monuments. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. There are 26 cemeteries overseas. These are American cemeteries where only American combat service people are buried. People I who lost their lives in combat. I, I've I've been to several of them, like uh, Normandy, our it, cemetery yeah, that, Normandy. That that's our flagship. Totally, and and one of the questions I've always had when I and I was just there last year is, you know, who who takes care of this? I know the United States does, and apparently this was the group that you were working for. This is the agency that took care of it. Amazing. And I was the secretary, reported directly to the White House, and I took care of them. That was my responsibility. 26 cemeteries, 32 battle monuments in uh, 17 countries on five continents. That must have been uh, an amazing 
job. I mean, holy cow. Well, I'll tell you, Tony, I didn't look at it as a job. I looked at it as a calling. Yes. As a duty. As a former infantry soldier, 80% of the men that we have buried in those cemeteries, and there are 234,000, 80% were infantry soldiers or infantry MOS. I think one of the most powerful speeches I've ever heard in my entire life was from Colin Powell at the uh, American Cemetery in Normandy. Yep. It was during the Gulf War, and everyone was accusing the United States of going to war over oil and territory. And in his speech, he said, you know, the United States has, has gone to war to support democracy for centuries. And the only thing we ask for, God, I'm choking up, just, just trying to come up with this. He said, the only thing that the American um, military has ever asked for was enough room to bury our dead. You're exactly right, Tony. Very famous words uh, and, and uh, mentioned all the time. Yeah. He was giving a speech. Uh, I forget exactly where it was. He said, the only, only piece of land, et cetera, we ever asked for was enough land to bury our soldiers. And how you many know? other superpowers in human history can say that? Yeah, that's right. We went over and liberated Europe in two wars, World War I, World War II. Yep. And that's where most of our cemeteries and battle monuments are, you know, on those, those two major wars. And we were, if we were other world powers that existed before and during us, we would have occupied Japan. We'd still be there. We'd still be in Germany. We'd still be in all those places. And that's something that I think a lot of Americans really don't appreciate. I really don't think they do. Even I, so, so to be able to be on, like you said, this duty, this calling, where you're helping to maintain our presence in these areas where these men died. And that's, that's all we ask for is enough space to put these monuments up and to bury them. Yep, exactly. And, and the cemeteries, you say you've been to some of them. Yep. You can see they're just, they're, they're beautiful. They're pristine in nature. They're actually, they're shrines. They're America's, among America's most beautiful shrines. And the language, the prayers that are uh, engraved on the granite walls of the little memorials inside the cemeteries are perhaps the most beautiful Christian and Jewish prose I have ever read. I don't disagree with you. I, I literally saw people at the American Cemetery in Normandy with scissors clipping grass around the headstone so they wouldn't get uh, Yep. Them. Isn't that something? When were you there, Tony? I was there for the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, June 6th. The, the 70th or the 75th? The 78th, so it was two years ago. Oh, 78th. Okay, yeah. And we went there with someone that we had on our podcast who was in the first wave of Omaha Beach. On the, yep. uh, he was part of the, the uh, 26th Infantry Division. And he... Um, 29th. 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 I'm sorry. 29th Infantry Division. Thank you. Uh, the blue and white patch. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, it was the first time he was there uh, since Normandy. And we spent uh, the week with a, a whole entourage of people taking him to some of the places that, that he remembered. You know what bothered him, Bill, when he would talk to kids and stuff? Do you want to know what, what memory really bothered him after all this time? What was that? What bothered him was he cried over it a few times. He said, we would go into these cities and we didn't know, you talked about fighting in cities before. This is related to that. Yeah. He said, they go into these towns. They didn't know what was there. They were told to shoot out windows and to throw grenades in basement to save Americans live and to push on through, to not loiter. 
Yeah. And, and he said that they were doing that for months. And then there was one town they went into and they, they were about ready to throw grenades into these basements, which was standard operating procedure. And there was some sort of thing that stopped them. And they looked and it was full of townspeople and civilians. Oh boy. And he thought to himself, you know, how many, how many of these people have we killed roaring through these towns? And, yeah. you, and, and here's something that I thought was really cool is when he would share that story at schools or at veterans events in Normandy, they, they told him that it wasn't his fault that he was there. It was their fault for not being able to defend their own country and that they appreciated the fact that Americans were able to go there and liberate them and that that's the cost of victory. He, and yeah. I, think, I think he needed to hear that. Boy, that, that's beautiful, Tony. That is amazing. And I can see that and I understand it. I know you do. Because the, uh, the people uh, uh, that we liberated, their, their generations, their fathers now, who are over there tending to our cemeteries, they will tell you the same story. Yeah. They appreciated the American GI coming over there to liberate them. And yes, there were casualties, but you know, uh, you talked about the civilian that, that you guys accidentally killed, you know, when you were doing urban, urban combat, I mean, yes. that's, that's urban combat and that's, yep, exactly. Yeah. And it's terrible. And the only way to not do it is to not have wars, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Unfortunately in these wars and these battles, I've seen it firsthand in Vietnam, uh, the civilians so often, uh, feel the brunt of the battle, you know, are going to take the brunt of the battle. They do. So did you have a chance to meet uh, 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 President Trump or anything like that when you were part of the Oh, yes, I did. Well, during my tenure as secretary, I went in, actually, I started January 2018 and came out in April of 2021 when the Biden administration came in. I got my letter and said, thank you, please leave, you know, (laughs) a new administration. But uh, while I, during that period of time, there were two major, major events for ABMC and for the country. The first was the 100th anniversary, the centennial anniversary of the end of World War I. Okay. Yep. That was November of uh, 2018. Yep. And so that was a major ceremony we had over there in one of our cemeteries outside of Paris, France. And, uh, I was the host, obviously, for the entire event, uh, and President Trump uh, came over and uh, spoke. Obviously, it was a it was in the pouring rain. It was all over national news. I don't know if you saw it, uh, but it was well covered in the national news. He gave a beautiful, beautiful speech in the pouring rain. I was standing right alongside of him on the podium. I kicked the uh, event off. Uh, by uh, by introducing him, so I was with him with him there for a short while that day, and we took him out into the graveyard and walked him among the headstones. And uh, I, you know, I'll tell you, I uh, even though it was raining, I, I I saw a tear in his eye. You know, and we came up out of the uh, out of the graveyard and then up the ramp onto the dais, onto the stage, and the ceremony was then conducted. He gave his speech, etc. The second time I really spent time with him was at the uh, 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. Hmm. You said you were at the 78th. Yep. Well, the 75th was was a huge one. That was uh, that was in what 19? 
2019. Yep. And I was the host for that. And I was brought into the White House and they said, hey, Secretary Matz, you, you better make sure everything is pristine. It goes beautifully because the president and the first lady are coming over and they are going to be they're going to be met by President Macron and, and his wife, the French uh, president and his wife. Yep. So it was a huge ceremony. And in fact, to this day, it's the largest ceremony, the largest event that the American Battle Monuments Commission has ever done in its hundred years. There were over 15,000 attending uh, right there in the Normandy Cemetery. We had contractors come in and they they set up the stage uh, by that big memorial, if you recall, the cemetery. But the biggest thing is we had 171 World War II veterans there on stage. Now think of that. These are World War II combat veterans, 171. Many were pushed in wheelchairs, etc. So the youngest guy was 94 years old, and the oldest had his birthday the next day was 101. Of that 171, 59 of those people actually made the D-Day invasion that day. They either crossed the beaches on Utah or Omaha, or they jumped in with the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. Can you imagine that? No, I can't. So, I mean, what a what a thrill that was for me to sit up there on the dais with the president, both presidents and first ladies, and then right behind us were rows and rows and rows of American World War II veterans. You've led a good life, Bill. I mean, I I I I'm glad you're writing a book to shave this to, to share this with for posterity. And I'm glad that you have grandkids that care enough to ask you about the things you did. Yeah, I know it. I got seven grandsons. And the one that uh, he realizes now I did not fight in the Civil War, you know. He's <laughs> <laughs> not that old. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he asked me that question when he was a lot younger. So innocently. That was funny. It's a big joke around the house. Oh, my I gosh. Mean, I, I know I'm old, but I, but I didn't make the Civil War. I missed that one. <laughs> the Civil War General William Matz. So, yeah, right. So, you know, was was that kind of the last gig post-retirement? Did it are, – are, have you settled in or are you still doing stuff? What are you doing now? Well, you know, yeah. So I am – what? I've been out of the Trump administration two years now. And honest to God, uh, Tony, I, I really miss that because – you know, when you, I mean, you're, you're going through life now, you're still a young man, but you know, you're a, you know, when you're a perfect fit for the job, you know, or, you know, maybe when, when you have taken a job or you have a job and you're just not quite the right fit for it, but that's your job you're doing. Being secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission, I was told when they presented the, uh, my name to president Trump, he, of course he had to prove it. And I hadn't even met him at that time. Uh, he took me because I was an infantryman. Yep. He wanted an infantryman in there. I mean, uh, even though he never served himself, but uh, he wanted an infantry soldier to take over that secretariatship. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, I, I I missed it so much. Uh, I've been out what, a little over two years. And that's when I decided, uh, you know, this is a good time to pull my notes together and draft up something for my grandkids. So I sort of started working just on loose notes to be able to turn over 
to give to them. And one thing led to the next couple people said, Hey, Bill Matz, you know, this is a great book. You overcome adversity. You overcame polio as a child. You were able to jump out airplanes and do all those things and serve your country. This is a great, uh, a great lesson in overcoming adversity. Yeah. A great lesson in perseverance for young families, young kids who might be fighting or having an issue themselves. So that's what the book's about, Tone. I can't. You, you please reach out to us when it gets published, so we can. We'll put it on our website. We'll share it on our podcast. I, I can't wait to read the more detailed accounts and invariably elements that you know we miss that you've had time to really think about and put down on paper. I'm I'm really happy you did that. And when you think back on your life, your your career in the military, you know, your relationship with Linda, your kids and all. I mean, what sort of things, let's just focus on the military career. What sort of things stick out after all this time? What sort of things do you remember the most? Well, uh you know, I uh of course, I remember my times in the Army, which I went over a good bit of those in the last couple hours here. Uh, I, I remember uh, what didn't come out in our talk was uh, the deep friendships that I, uh, that I had, even from high school, but primarily in my college fraternity. Uh, I stay close to those guys uh, today, those that are still living, and all of us, all of us served, you know, uh, in the service. Uh, there were maybe three of us that stayed and retired, myself and a couple others, but what stands out in my life, to answer your question, is the deep friendships that I have with those people. Uh, the wonderful, you know, the wonderful times with my family, and uh, I appreciate every day more and more, uh, my, my wife and how she contributed to all this and how she was just a, uh, uh, just the perfect army wife for somebody who was going to make a career, uh, in the army. Uh, you know, a lot of women, uh, don't, don't, they don't want to put up with that. You know, they want their husband's air every minute. Yeah. So, so those things stand out. And of course my, uh, last, uh, assignment, as secretary of ABMC, we just talked about in the Trump administration, having the honor of being uh, the overseer, America's guardian of uh, of our war dead was quite an honor. Wow. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Uh Let's see. The um, no, I think I think we mentioned uh, most of the key things. Uh, the uh, Panama invasion, my time as a young lieutenant, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, those kind of events. You know, having served really very closely with four or five different administrations, uh, you know, was was very very interesting. Uh, I, I really can't think of it. I, uh, you know, I'm the type of person that, uh, I don't worry about age, Tony, to me, uh, age is nothing but a number. Yeah. And, uh, I'm the kind of guy that, uh, uh, you heard the saying, I think it's Clint Eastwood said, I don't let the, I don't let the old man come in. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, well, I say I don't let the young boy leave. <laughs> and that's in my book. I've coined that phrase. Uh, I so have... I'm still I'm still a kid at heart. I'm ready. I'm ready for the next battle, the next job, you know, if something if it's interesting enough and I feel I can contribute to it. Uh, what I don't like is the is what I see in America today. Uh, and I'm not sure how that's all going to sort out. But, you know, I'm uh, I'm keeping my powder dry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I got to tell you, I, I can do the math. I know how old you are. And uh, I, I, I was really surprised to, to learn, you know, it's like, wow, because you, you have, let's put it this way, you've aged well and, and you've done it with surviving polio, with getting wounded in, in Vietnam. I mean, I, um, I can't thank you enough for taking these last two or three hours, um, to, to share with, with me and, and, and our audience eventually, these experiences, uh, general mats. Um, I can't wait to do the edits on this and, and share this with a lot of people uh, there. I, it's just, uh, it's just an honor to be able to meet people like you, uh, not just for what you've done, but what you stand for. Um, and you've done it your entire life. This isn't an epiphany. It's, it's who you were as a young man. Yeah. Well, well, really, uh, uh, Tony, uh, the, uh, the the pleasure and the honor of these last couple hours have really been mine. I've been delighted to sit down with you, and I, I thank Marilyn Walton, who, yeah. uh, who I guess you did an interview with her or, or you know, yep. got involved some way with her. She introduced me to you, and I appreciate it very, very much, and uh, don't mind talking about it because these are stories that we need to share with the generations coming up, you know? I agree. And they need to be uh, available. I know, as I said, I sat down a few years ago and had a long, long interview with my own college. Uh, and they've set up a, a, a sort of a Vietnam wing in their library where students who are there now, history majors, poli-sci majors, studying the Vietnam War, the causes, what it was like, they can pull, they can pull these interviews out and read them, you know, firsthand interviews from people who were there. And I'm sure this interview, I'm not sure where this goes now. You'll have to tell me that, Tony. But, you know, it'll be available for, for people who may be doing research. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be able to sit down with a guy like you who I can tell by your questioning, et cetera, you understand it. And uh, uh, it's good to tell your story. And this is why we do it. Because someone has to go out there and collect these stories, and not just stories from veterans, but from, you know, any number of uh, really important critical historical elements that, you know, a modern civil society faces today, whether it has to do with, you know, uh, racism or discrimination or uh, any, any variety of issues that are facing the planet. If we can sit down and record the oral histories of the people involved in these things, I think you get a far more unvarnished, unvarnished, I should say, version uh, in a collective sense of that historical period than just reading a book that someone has interpreted from that period of time. So with that being said, we really hope that you uh, enjoyed getting to know General Matz. We know we, know we did. And um, we really hope that if you enjoy what we're doing, uh, please support us 
on our webpage or Facebook page. Um, there is a way where you can become a subscriber for as little as $5 a month. And that subscription will uh, give you unfettered access to uh, the entire series without having to wait week by week by week as each one drops. Those subscribers for um, The Warrior Next Door had the ability to hear the entire three-hour General Matt's interview uh, uninterrupted and without delay. And, and more importantly than that, uh, that money goes towards helping us, which is a passion project, uh, to keep to keep this going. Uh, this is not our day job. I'd like it to be, but it's not. And it probably never will be, and that's okay because we get a chance to meet some really, really awesome people. So with that being said, thank you for listening to the Warrior Next Door podcast. Thank you for supporting us by listening. Please hit subscribe or like if you like what we have to say. And if you don't, just ignore us and hop on over to something else. So with that being said, uh, I'm Tony Lupo, and I'm speaking for Ryan Fairfield and saying... We hope you enjoyed this uh, three-part series, and stay tuned. We've got a lot more cool stuff coming up over the holidays. Take care.